Welcome back to A Thousand Names for God. My name is Rick Alexander. I'm the host of this podcast. As always, the show notes have all of the sources mentioned, as well as all of the ways that you can connect and work with me. Without further ado, on to the show. Rick Alexander. Rick, thanks for doing the deep end with me. Yeah, these are always interesting and I never know where they're going to go. Yeah, so... Which is why we wanted to do these in the first place, right? Right, right. So today is Easter. So we wanted to release a podcast with musings and circlings around some of the particular imagery and the symbols associated with the Christ motif, with the death, resurrection, tomb rising all, all of all of that that is associated with the Easter holiday and we wanted to kind of take a non-traditional kind of judeo-christian approach and just amplify the symbolism to create a deep end podcast a deep conversation so. yeah it's so interesting because I'm remembering now when I was in a theology class in seminary we were talking about the like you know in in I guess in Orthodox religion, there's a right and a wrong way to do things, to think about things, to talk about things, which I really struggled with because I have a really high degree of openness and psychological flexibility. And like, I remember being in class and we were, you know, my professor is essentially letting us know like the only acceptable real way to, to think about this is literal. And I, and so I asked the question, like, what do you make of the fact that it, it maps so exactly onto psychological like process mm-hmm. and it was interesting because there's like not really an answer like well that it's just a coincidence and mm-hmm. so that felt like un- <laughs> if you said it was a synchronicity you think you would be like no it's just a coincidence <laughs> well i think it i think it's a reflection of like what's appropriate in that place but it yeah. also made me realize like there's okay I don't think it's a coincidence. I think that actually this is drawing on a lot of different mythologies and there's a lot Mm. more going on here, which is where I think is a good place to start. Yes. So a good place to start, I think, given that story, would be to open up to Joseph Campbell's four functions of myth. So myth serves four functions. So these technically are four questions that... How in our lives do, do myth serve as the primary organizing metaphors of the imagination in the human realm? And so Campbell has four different functions. So the first one is psychological, which is interesting because in seminary, it was basically like, push that out. Right, that, right. Right, Yeah, so, it's like a denial of that function. Yeah. So the psychological function is a function that aids the individual in the passage through life stages. It's, it um, emphasizes important points in one's life and centralizing it in the unfolding of life. Mm. So that's the psychological function of myth. Yeah, and I want to say real quick, just if I can riff on that for a minute, like there's mm-hmm. something that's always struck me about really important. This is why I was drawn to Carl Jung's work because that feels like our route in. 
mm-hmm. to a myth, right? Because we aren't, we don't exactly have the consciousness that gave rise to that myth. You know, um, like for example, I was just reading you a book written by um, Patrice Melodome Somme, who is from Western Africa, who still participates in these like rituals. They do like literal sacrificing animals. So like he's, you know, he's like in that symbolic consciousness. He's he's literally immersed in it. He lives it. He sees it. But that's not really true for us. So like a route in to know like how does this work for me? How does this apply to my life? Like mm-hmm. what's actually not changed its psyche? I think. So that leads great into the second function with it, which is sociological function. So it validates and maintains the moral systems of a particular culture. As I was telling you this morning, the Ten Commandments for Christianity are, you know, that kind of like mythical socializing or sociological function of myth. Mm. So it creates a moral system. Right. But that can't be separate from... In order to maintain social order. Right. Right. So like people like Karl Marx, for example, their entire critique of religion you know, he's famously said religion is an opiate for the masses. Like he's basically looking at only the social function mm-hmm. and saying this is what religion is. Right. So I think that's why it's important to kind of open up these four functions so that we can look at this particular myth through different lenses. Right. 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 Um, the third one is mystical. It serves to awaken and maintain a sense of wonder in the whole mystery of what we may think is an inscrutable universe. So it gives us that affirmative sense of awe about the world. It deals with existential questions of meaning, purpose, and the goals of life. Hmm. And then the last one is a cosmological function of myth. Okay. I want to say that that one too real quick of like... Mystical? Yeah. Like we don't... We don't have a lot of that in our life, right? Like wonder is like kind of things that that child that a child does, but like as adults in Western culture, there's not a lot of mystery. There's not a lot of wonder, and mm-hmm. part of that is because we shrink our world down to only what we can understand because we put us at the center of our world. And so yeah. when you have an experience, and I think this is one of the things in my mind that's actually behind the psychedelic renaissance is like it induces an experience of awe and awe is medicine because it puts you in right relationship with the cosmos like Mm -hmm. you see your place in it all and Mm -hmm. rather than being it all being that centerpiece so leading us into the cosmological function of myth it provides a map of the universe and our place in it it reaffirms that sense of awe in the mystical mm. experience. It tells us of the universe's divine forces and how those forces come into being. The universe has an animated and ensouled place that inherently connects us to the web of life. So these are notes, by the way, from one of my classes. So I, I want to give credit to Saffron Rossi because she was kind of pulling this from Joseph Campbell's work. And so, um, but given that, we, we need myths We need myths to live in accordance to our deeper nature, and it helps us use the stories and images, which I think is the goal in this podcast, to connect us to the archetypal basis of psyche. Mm. So because we're talking about Jesus and the Jesus motif and the myth, doesn't mean that these things only happen to Jesus. These images and experiences can move through us as well. And that's what makes it archetypal. It makes it a pattern of experience. Right. And so I think that part right there, like 
that idea of like a pattern of experience because this to my mind is what myth is actually doing and i just wrote a paper about like the relationship between ritual and myth because i think what the relationship is is that ritual put it allows you to participate in those patterns um Mm -hmm. and there's a really good quote by john verveke that makes a point of this and he says myths aren't false stories about the ancient past they're symbolic stories about perennial patterns that are always with us so it's not historical, it's metaphorical, living, animated Because you are images, living it yes, right now. That are moving through. Different names, mm-hmm. you know, different titles, but the pattern, the underlying patterns that cohere our reality are still mm-hmm. the patterns. So I think that's the difference between an archetype per se and then the archetypal image. So the archetype per se, I think, is that kind of primordial consciousness that kind of sits underneath the surface and it's it's not knowable it's not seeable it's you can't grasp it you can't put it down it's it it is what constellates the movement of a particular archetypal pattern Mm -hmm. and then the archetypal image so we're going to talk about the archetypal image of christ like the death and resurrection of christ and that is a particular pattern in the context of a story right right so i think that that's important for anybody who's interested in archetypes and 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 that to like differentiate because there is a difference right right the archetypal image is just the the manifestation of that pattern at that time yeah in in context in context different stories right right so the pattern what is the pattern? That's I think that's the question first, right? Then if we're talking about it in this symbolic way. Of the Christ myth? Yeah, if we look at like the the what gets celebrated around the world today is the pattern. Candy. <laughs> is the Easter egg, right? Um, <laughs> Which also, I think the egg is actually a quite uh, potent symbol, but we won't go down that. We could probably do a whole deep end on the egg symbolism. but It is interesting that we use an egg, actually, now that you think about it. Because there's a lot of Hindu mythology that the world comes out of an egg. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's like the cosmic gloom. Right, the cosmic um, gloom. So the first one that we were kind of jamming back and forth on before we hit record was, um, you know, Jesus basically getting the shit kicked out of him mm. while he's carrying the cross. Yeah. Right? So just getting, like, tortured to death. Not even when he's on the cross yet, but like on the way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I actually do think though, like when I read that myth, like what strikes me is the scapegoating before that part of like, because there's this whole thing made of like Pontius Pilate, like is the person that is essentially, you know, the Jews bring him to the Roman, the Roman in charge is Pontius Pilate and he's the one that decides. And it's like, based on what's going on around that time, it's fundamental that they would release one prisoner. And so they had one prisoner, and I can't remember what he did, but he was guilty, is how the myth goes. Maybe it was a murder or something, but he's guilty. And then there's Christ, who essentially has no sort of guilt at all for for doing anything. He's kind of been um, trapped into this situation. And to just, if you read that story, like it really teaches you how we project what we can't hold in ourselves onto other people, and then we crucify those people. Like that, it became so obvious to me of like, that's exactly what's happening in this story. Um, when he gets even condemned to go, to go get the shit beat out of him before he goes on the cross, you know, there's like this, there's this like 
I don't know, you could just see how this like group thinks the scapegoat mechanism works of like, I have to, we have to put this on somebody because we can't find it in ourselves. So leading into this kind of torturing experience, we're talking about archetypal dismemberment, right? So dismemberment, I'm going to read from the book Assembles here. Um, dismemberment is a mythopoetic rendering of the process of fragmentation and dissolution, which may lead to differentiation and renewal. It belongs to the family of death mysteries. Dismemberment calls forth fertility and resurrection, freeing the libido by breaking down defensive structures until only the bones of the personality remain upon which a new body is created. I think what you're talking about there with projection can only be freed through the psychological process of dismemberment. It's like we would hold that, store that, right? But it is through these psychologically dismembering processes that that's like cut apart, fragmented, dissolved. Mm. Like it's almost like this cleansing. It's like a sort of like psychological cleansing, but it's through torture. It's through pain. It's through suffering. Right. Um, which is an initiation process. Yeah. Cause that, that like, to me, that sounds like a lot of like shamanistic initiations, they, there's always a sort of di- mm-hmm. ritual dismembering that has to take place. Mm-hmm. And people experience that now too. Like if you go do ayahuasca, there's a chance you're going to be dismembered in that experience. And, and that pulling apart as like you're asserting now, like has to happen, has to free that energy. An archetypal process of dismemberment is an undoing, which affects transformation on a different register than rational understanding. Um, the dismemberment is the first step in the fertility magic where dissolution provides the seeds of rebirth. So before he even dies, there's this psychological dismembering happening. Mm. So I think the necessary question is then like, how does this show up in our lives, right? If we're talking about this is the way in, this is the way we understand myth and apply it to our life. It's like, how does this either this need for dismembering show up or does the actual process show up? Well, I think it is like the process of when you're going through these maybe moments of symptomatic darkness, Mm -hmm. right? And that feels like it's like tearing you to pieces. Like ultimately the, the important thing with connecting to archetypal patterns is that there's an inherent value or a deep, connection to meaning in those patterns well if we're only trying to make rational sense of all of this dark torturous psychological movement that's happening inside of us you're not allowing yourself to be dismembered there is a process of kind of surrendering into the dismemberment at at a certain point Mm. or it's going to drive you mad right Right, yeah. And I think I mean I think that's why you see this in like Dionysian Dionysian rituals. There's always a mm-hmm. there's always a dismemberment in in that process to save you from madness, actually. Yes. It says possession by unconscious manias and obsessions, opening of boundaries and being torn up. Mm-hmm. Like if you just like sit like pause that and sit with that, right? Those like moments where all of our boundaries are falling apart, our sense of self is dissolving, like we're literally feeling like we're being possessed by all these dark figures internally. Like that is a dismembering process Mm. psychologically. I think where this shows up for people is craving, I'll say where this showed up for me in my twenties is like craving oblivion. 
mm-hmm. right? Like what's behind it when someone says, I just want to go, go out and get fucked up, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, you're, you, yes, that's exactly what you need to do because you need to be dismembered because your consciousness is trying to present, like move through this portion of your life. And I think that craving of oblivion, that like craving of just wanting to get blasted, I think that is that need to be dismembered because the energy is stuck. Mm. It needs to be released. It says, God's personifying the dynamics of dismemberment, such as Osiris, Dionysus, and Kali, personify the perspective potentials of this archetypal experience. Violence, loss, grief, catastrophe, privation, illness, despair, envy, fury, and ecstasy, induced altered states that dismember by delinking the personality from its habitual moorings. Mm Mm-hmm. So I do think that that's, that is linked to the Christ myth mm. in, in, in the torture and the suffering of carrying the cross and, and being nailed to the cross. Yeah. So that, that's kind of what I wanted to talk about was like, there's also this idea of like when this ritual dismemberment is happening, he's also carrying the cross. That's like a really important motif, right? And even if you just think about it in a way of like, so the way the myth plays out is there's this person who didn't do anything wrong but is choosing to carry the cross anyway. And mm-hmm. it's like, now put yourself in your life and think about the bullshit that you have to deal with and the like, you know, the the things you didn't choose. But there mm-hmm. is some sort of dignity or there is some sort of transformation that waits if you can bear it, if you can carry your cross, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an important aspect of this. And it's, I think it's the highest value, right? It's Mm -hmm. like you're carrying the highest value as you suffer towards it. And I think that sometimes those highest values are not in conscious relationship with how we move through the world. But for Jesus in particular, he was carrying the highest value to Mm -hmm. his death. Right. He was going to die for and on the highest value and i think that that is the process of you know enlightenment Mm -hmm. right but i I, (laughs) i'm not talking about enlightenment here for people right but i think that just knowing that we're carrying something that we we perhaps are going to die on i think is psychologically important yeah the values that we would die for yeah that's really interesting right because there's almost no values in our culture that are worth dying for except for like country you know which is interesting in itself like nationalism is acceptable but just think about the way like that we handle disease and that we handle um i mean just everything that threatens us like our we try to stamp out like there's this it's interesting because Jung said the gods have become diseases Right, and I'm just thinking of my DMA experience in particular, and it was for sure a dismembering, like death dealing process, and there was just like this point of like, like climax where it was like ultimate clinging, like and like I could sense the surrender, but it was like recognizing how much I was clinging to this diseased god mm. image. Like, you know, it was, it was basically this this dark, like, fear-potentiating figure in the psyche. I would call it the animus, the masculine inside of me that was, like, this destructive mm. 
death dealing thing, but I was clinging to that as my highest value in the ways that I treated my body and the ways that I, you know, would drink energy drinks and work out like super hard without no, no regard for the body. Right. And it's interesting during Diame how all of that came up. And so just like that, I was going to die for that highest value. And then what that experience did that this memorying experience made me reevaluate my values Hmm. and what cross I wanted to carry. Right. Or felt necessary to carry. Right, right. Not what I wanted, actually. (laughs) Right, yeah. So, okay. So then then we get to the cross, right? Mm -hmm. So we carry the cross. and, And it's like an unspeakable, it's like a really long distance. I think that's really important to know, too. And you're being, having the shit beat out of you while it's happening. Right, mm-hmm. and then there's the motif of he's hanging behind between two criminals, mm-hmm. and um, the way that the story goes is that one accepts um, his sort of forgiveness right there, and Christ has that line of like, you know, tonight you'll be with me in heaven, basically, mm-hmm. and then the other one doesn't, and so there's a that's an interesting, there's something interesting going on there where like there's some truth about the human psyche if you think about crisis like acceptance the self. and denial yeah like yeah if you think about crisis self right so this is the not not ego self like this is the self as in the totality of what you are outside of what you know that you are mm-hmm. right and that there's a there's one figure on one side that accepts and one figure on the other side that rejects so do you think that those criminals are different sub-personalities within our, when a, within our psychology when the, t- the divine essence uh, that's driving you, Jesus, mm-hmm. right, is in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. And one sub-personality is like, I accept this. Yeah. And the other is like, I do not. Right. And that like tension and the paradox that exists in that space. Right. I want to quit this thing. I want to keep doing this. I want to move on. That was my time experience. Yeah, like I want to move on in some way in my life. I'm really attached to the old. That's interesting thinking of Jung's transcendent function, you know? Right. So now we, that's where we can map the transcendent function onto it, right? I just did a podcast on the transcendent function. So you can go back and refer to that. Well, do you want to Um, just say real quick for people listening, like what? Yeah. So it's when you have these two opposing um, attitudes in the psyche and it creates this tension in the psyche and it's typically one's more connected to consciousness and the other one's more unconscious and without the space or the recognition that there's like tension between them it just kind of creates this like disturbing affect that wells in the unconscious but if you can contain and hold the tension of those two oppositions within then Jung proposed that a third thing would come through a transcendent function an image a symbol a function of the divine and break the tension it's interesting because like my interest in Hillman's work it's kind of see it more instead of oppositions multiplicities so i think it's not just two i think there's many that are 
pulling pooling yeah mm-hmm. i think it's a, a pantheon of different tensions um which creates more tension but i do think that there's something inherent about creating containment around the oppositions mm-hmm. because if it's held and handled with care not with negligence or repression um i think there is this the psyche kind of moves through right right and so and so if you think about that like pushing and pulling the necessary thing like for me that i've really been reflecting on is like you know you have you have an image of yourself that is essentially you could imagine you have an image of yourself that is like good however you define good like mm-hmm. let's say like you're trying to kick a habit or something you have this image of yourself that's like wants to kick it and then you have this other image of yourself that wants to do it and what you think is that you have to get, you have to solve that problem but you don't you have to outgrow it and that is completely different it's not that you you know you don't like young makes the assertion that like i i all of my clients they'd never solved one of their problems because if a polarity exists within a certain paradigm of thought the polarity necessarily exists they imply each other there isn't only a good mm-hmm. there isn't only a night mm-hmm. and so this is like so this is like the problem is like we have these models of how to be here these models of our life that create these dyna- these, these polarities and mm-hmm. we're trying to we're trying to transcend within the model and it's not going to happen because the polarities imply each other. What has to happen is you have to hold the tension long enough to outgrow it, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the most popular, if we're speaking of polarities and the inner criminals, right? There's one that I see the most in my clientele is this process should be going faster or should be looking different. Mm-hmm. So that's one side of it. And then there's this like inner part inside of them that's like, slow down. This is going too fast. We, like, we need time. We need space. We need, you know, attention. And so the, that's the a, a big polarity that I see is like, faster, different now, mm-hmm. should. And it's like, no, slow down. We're doing it. It's fine. We're healing. And those are the tensions that most often show up. Yeah, right. Yeah, totally. And so then, you know, there's some things that are said on the cross that I think are important. Like, um, you know, forgive them for they know not what they do. Like that feels really important to me Mm -hmm. um, because it's a you see the Christ image getting wielded through all kinds of like fear gospels you know all kinds of condemnation gospels like and you know this the whole entire myth his entire life every single point he keeps saying like no the substructure of this entire reality is grace you're already forgiven Mm -hmm. and so and like right up until he's been betrayed to the highest degree possible that doesn't change Mm -hmm. you know and that Mm -hmm. feels like an important lesson yeah people um and then you know it's interesting because he a roman at the end walks up and puts a spear into his side Mm -hmm. and then in the grail mythology later on the spear shows up again as um when 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 parsifal's in the grail castle they bring out the, the holy grail which is something like the attainment of ultimate meaning in life maybe it's enlightenment maybe it's waking up maybe it's actually you just realizing the life that you have 
and the mm-hmm. beauty of it. But it's interesting to me that, like I, I mentioned this in our book club calls, like when that happens, when the Grail Castle, when the Grail comes out, the Holy Grail comes out and is made available, it's also side by side with the spear that killed Christ. And like, there's something really interesting to me of like, this opening of consciousness doesn't happen without the thing that ended the previous consciousness, mm-hmm. you know, without mm-hmm. the thing that created the death. That is how new consciousness emerges. Mm-hmm. So let's first talk about the, want to just talk about the idea of the tomb in general, because this long predates Christ. This is the idea of the tomb, like as far as we can tell, comes from like ancient, ancient Greece. And what we find, this is pre-Homer, this is like, you know, 10,000 years ago, Greece, is evidence of goddess worship, is like all of this goddess worship. And so the idea would be that you go back into the tomb, Mm -hmm. which is the womb of Gaia, right, into the earth, into the mother's womb, to be reborn. Uh, Again, reading from the Book of Symbols, it says the idea of burial as planting alludes to the mysteries of descent and resurrection, which is goddess worship the image evokes not only the ultimate submersion in the body but also the fertilizing hummus of psychic deaths and the dissolutions that release rich elements of transformation alchemically the imagery of burial belongs to the dark melancholy of negredo also did a podcast on that so you can go refer to that um just as the corruptible body goes into the earth and putrefies so the dead matter of the psyche the outgrown desires and tendencies that inform the old life is surrendered and ceases to exercise its potency in the liminal space in the time of the metaphorical tomb the old way of being decomposes while the new has yet to emerge the waiting however is not merely stasis Descent is restoration of contact with the mother ground where the loss of the seeding of the golden grain and death is conception. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, you know, what stood out to me is that the use of psyche there. So if we go back to ancient Greece, the word psyche is the word for soul. It's also the word for butterfly because mm-hmm. there was an idea that what we were doing here, what the soul was doing here was on a journey of transformation. They didn't even have separate words for these things. The thing Mm -hmm. that transforms is what you are, Mm -hmm. in other words. Interesting. Right, and now you think psyche, it's like then we wrap it up with Western psychology, so now it's just the brain, it's just the mind. You know, That's how far we are from Mm -hmm. this idea that we're here experiencing a fundamental transformation of what it means to be. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, this image of going into this psychological tomb, right? Um, I think that that psychological saying of like womb and tomb are one, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's really interesting because it shows the death dealing side of the mother goddess. Mm-hmm. So it's not just showing this like creative potential this encompassing holding of of the mother but it's also showing her her dark death dealing nature which i think that's important because again it opens up this kind of paradoxical space of of death and rebirth mm. so it's it's never just one thing 
So those like dark spaces in, in our psyche, I think we try to escape them looking for the light. Yes. Because um, they feel th- like they're pulling us down. Right. But I think that the light in the dark is the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, back into the, I think it's like the Paleolithic period of like mother worship. Mm-hmm. There were like three different colors associated with the, the, the great mother and it was red, white, and black. And black was actually associated with life back in that period. I think it was like 14,000 BC or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, but black was like the symbol of life and white was the symbol of death because white was associated with bones which Mm. represented like death and decay and black was fertile soil Mm. for new life and then red was life because of the blood so i think it's just interesting to open up even just these different symbolic associations of colors right Mm -hmm. because like when we think of like womb and tomb it's you know there there are similar colors of like black and dark red and like that type of coloring uh-huh. that comes to mind at least when i think of womb and doom yeah and just the deep archetypal associations to all the different faces of the great mother mm. it's never just one thing right it's interesting because it reminds me of um again this like west african tribe the grandfather or the grandparents and the newborn were the closest because they were the two that were the closest to the other world, mm. right? That's cool. One was getting ready to go, and one was coming, and so there was a there was like a, an exchange of knowing and information between those two because they were the closest to the other world. Very interesting. Yeah, super cool. Um, it, what's interesting to me is because as we're amplifying this. Almost nowhere in the Judeo-Christian myth does it mention anything about a great mother in relationship to this mm-hmm. death-rebirth process, which is inherently feminine mm-hmm. in the psyche. Right. Which I think is just a testament to how the feminine has been pushed out of Western Christianity mm-hmm. and that God image and the, and the motifs associated with it. There's the mother Mary, right? The Virgin Mary. Yeah, and like the 20th century, there was a movement in the Catholic Church to elevate Mother Mary, right? They're trying to incorporate the feminine is what's happening. Um, in yeah, but without that. this like psychological archetypal perspective, it becomes this kind of flattened, you're just doing it because you have to do it, mm-hmm. right? Right, Because yeah. it's virtuous right. and altruistic. Yeah. Like it doesn't seem complete in yeah. some way. To me, right. because I feel like the symbolism of, you know, Jesus going, when we're going through these individuation processes, so if we look at Jesus as the hero, right, the heroes are typically in this kind of uh, psychologically incestuous relationship with the mother. So they're like mother-bound sons, mm-hmm. right? So he's being pulled away from kind of all the outer world happenings and going into this dismembering experience but in our individuation process the hero has to go into the child has to go back into the great mother to die and be reborn Mm. that's the psychological motif of the the child mother dynamic right and i think it's interesting that jesus dies gets sent back into this tomb Mm -hmm. 
which also serves as the womb of the great mother. Yep. And there's no longer this mother-son incest. It's a different dynamic. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. And, oh, man, there's so much to say about that. But, like, that's the night sea journey, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so the the I work with men all the time, and, like, there's this recognition that, like, when you're in this place of this mother-bound masculine, you have to take the night sea journey. And it's like the night sea journey is the sun that dips below the water, which is the unconscious. So it goes down into, right, mm-hmm. goes into the underworld. And in what you start seeing arise with all of this um, in the Christ folklore is the idea that he went to hell in those three days. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's this the literal night sea journey is taking place. You go down into the underworld to die and be reborn and then you're reborn the next morning you know that's the sun that's the night sea journey okay so i want to read again out of the book of symbols now we're reading on the womb here Mm -hmm. um it's saying as both birth birthplace and tomb the womb is the life source as well as the gaping abyss untiringly swallowing up the mortal humankind psychologically the fixed static aspects of the personality must be reduced back to their original state through a descent into the creative unconscious the maternal womb from which the ego is born if undertaken by a mature ego this can result in the self-surrender or regression resulting in a psychological failure to be fully born and manifest in the world even when undertaking by a developed ego, it is a long and perilous night sea journey like that of Jonah in the belly of the whale, requiring heroic measures to retrieve the treasure there within and reemerge uh, transformed. Mm. So in Jonah, you know, we tell the story now and we're like, oh, he's in the belly of the whale. But ancient people read that as he died. Mm. And so there's a point where people are asking Jesus for a sign that he's the Messiah and he says no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah i.e. you've got to take the night sea journey yourself mm. Mm. Really didn't you do a podcast on Jonah? Jonah yeah I did a long time ago Yeah. Um, moving on to the cave psychologically entering a cave tomb can have a quality of introversion, incubation, regression to the source, psychic withdrawal, or hibernation. The cave can represent a refuge, but also a confined and archaic perspective. It is like that undifferentiated state of of the mother. Mm -hmm. Um, A wanderer may become lost or disoriented in the cave or or experience a caving in, reflecting on how solid containment may give way to crushing self-doubt. Um... I think that just, this is just we're just amplifying all the different um, psychological implications of of, of this process, mm. right? Because like in the Jesus story, at least how I was taught it mm-hmm. in my Catholic upbringing, it was kind of like Jesus just goes in there and he's dead, and something magical happens and he comes out. Mm-hmm. In three days and it's like oh my gosh there's so much psychologically symbolically happening in those yeah death rebirth motifs and in like how much of a struggle it is if we're attached to heroic consciousness right. we need it but we can't be attached to it right i think that's the paradox we need the courage but we can't be attached to the old ideal. Like the old ideals have to die. Because the courage is to die. Mm-hmm. Right? And yeah. so 
like to accept death right right so and just to put this out there like this is why refusing to take the night sea journey for yourself and clinging to that story in the past as something that happened in history isn't helpful Mm-hmm. You know, and that's so much of what I felt like I experienced when I was like in seminary and in that world of like, it's all light. It's all just accept this story. And it's like, but what about where you die? You know, mm-hmm. what about your psychological transformation? So that just feels, um, and I and I, I think the two can exist together, but I think they have to. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that like just telling yourself a story about the past is like enough. You You have to die. And I think Jesus says that over and over. Well, it's like, okay, so if you just tell yourself a story about the past and there's no, like, symbolic meaning in it, then you might actually want to, like, literally die when this gets hard. If that makes, does that make sense? Um, can you say more about that? Well, I, I just feel like the meaning is the thing that kind of holds every, the psyche together. Right. It's the divine ordering of the psyche. And so if we're going through a, a process that's fragmenting ego consciousness, that's just rationally oriented to the world, only oriented to history and what rationally happened, mm. then you're disconnected from the symbols you're disconnected from the meaning that's held within the symbols that we're amplifying here. Right. And then you get to this moment in your life where things are fragmenting and falling apart. And without the meaning, without the divine order that holds things together, then you convince yourself that what you need to do is die. And so you think that you need to kill yourself. And it's actually not. It's that death is happening psychologically. Oh, I see. What so if it to... doesn't happen psychologically, if it doesn't happen symbolically, then it will happen physically is what you're saying? What I'm saying is there's a death, an archetypal death process happening and what needs to die is not literally you. That's what, that's what we think when we think literally and historically. Mm-hmm. But if we think symbolically, it's the rational part of our way of orienting that needs to die. Mm, it's right. that part of our psychology that needs to die. Right, right. And so I think that it's just like so fundamental that there's at least some source of, I think that why these conversations are so important is to like help people cultivate an archetypal eye, a symbolic eye, a way of seeing, not Mm -hmm. a eye, right? but like a way of seeing because I do think it helps in the process. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And like to get there, there's a death that has to happen. And that's mm-hmm. why we resist it so much, you know. Totally. Um, but I think it's really fascinating because like, like I said at the beginning, there's so much, there's so much mythology that this story draws on and brings together. And knowing that mythology really amplifies the story. Yeah. So what have we talked about so far? Dismem- well, scapegoating. Yeah. That's an archetypal dynamic. Yes. Dismemberment. Right. The grail. Yeah. Uh, the transcendent function with like the tension of opposites Hmm. burial I said dismemberment right yeah burial the great goddess great mother mother son dynamics the individuation the hero's journey like there's so many right right and there's there's a there's almost a metaphysical thing here that's happening too of like there's some like us coming into life us being here doing this thing 
is a dismemberment of sorts, right? Because it's the one becoming many. You know, we are finite. We're reflections of the infinite. We are finite, though. We are fragmented. And so the pattern that you see in, like, cosmogonic myths is, is God is the one becoming the many mm-hmm. and then uh, returning to the one, mm-hmm. right? And that's why all real knowledge is remembering, mm-hmm. right? That's why we say recognize. We recognize that we, we bring it. We already have. We've already been part of all of this. But when we experience, when we take birth in human life, I'm using a mythical motif here, but mm-hmm. there's like this idea that we are then fragmented. We are parts of the fragment and are, and and we are, and then we have an urge to become whole. And we all feel that. We all feel this sense of lack in us that we like want to become whole. And we try to fill it with all kinds of bullshit. But I, <laughs> what I like about the mythology is it says like, no, but you can fill it. It is fulfillable. You can get back to that place of wholeness. That's why I think the individuation myth is so important for our time, you know? Yeah, I think that, you know, I'm just, like, really wrestling with the idea of wholeness with, like, Jung and Hillman's, like, discrepancies. But there's this uh, quote that Hillman has about, like, like, not being able to really have a cosmology that, like, fits. Uh-huh. Um, and he talks about, like, keeping accident as an authentic category of existence. He says, accident may never be integrated. So these are like kind of traumas or these like random happenings that cause hurts and Mm. loss and death and all these things. So the accident may never be integrated, which would imply wholeness. Um, But it may strengthen the integrity of the soul's form by adding to it perplexity, sensitivity, vulnerability, and scar tissue. Mm. And I think that statement really amplifies of like okay so obviously we're not embodying wholeness all the time if we would we would all be enlightened and Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be so hard to be here right right so well if that's the case and then you feel like you can't make sense of wholeness and you can't make sense of your traumas and your traumas don't fit into the the idea of of wholeness it's like well you could think of it as strengthening the integrity of your soul Mm. of the essence of who you are Mm. of what you're made of making it more complex i know you talk about complexifying consciousness Mm -hmm. right um making it sensitive making it vulnerable i one of the words hellman uses a lot is like sophisticated refined it's like refining your soul it's like bringing the essence forward Mm. more and i think that there's something in that that sometimes we miss out on if we just jump to wholeness so i think if you do that you're what you're gonna feel is whole totally i I don't think that they're competing right that i don't think that they're competing i think that they nest within each. I think multiplicity nests within wholeness, mm-hmm. but I think wholeness is hard to attain here in this human realm fully. Um, so right. that's another defend. <laughs> right, totally. <laughs> well, cool. Is there any other anything else you wanted to um, add on to this? Well, I just wanted to mention that our book club starts next week, um, next Sunday, April 24th mm. at 12 p.m. noon Eastern Standard Time. Um, we're doing Trauma in the Soul by Donald Calshed. If you're interested but you're still unsure about it, I just released a podcast about um, his 
explaining the character Dis and mm. the psycho-spiritual approach in the book club, so you can go check that out, that episode. Um, but yeah, really looking forward to this one because I think it's going to open up some interesting dialogue. So um, it's pay-what-you-want donation-based, so you get to choose the price if you want to join a community that you know fosters dialogue such as this. We would love to have you. Yeah, for sure. Happy Easter. Yeah, I want to say one thing about Easter of like, you know, we're so, we're, we're a culture that has been really disconnected from our mythologies. Like we're really, um, even if you, you know, even if you go to church, there's a chance you're really disconnected from the mythology that founded your culture, you know? And so like just recognizing, taking opportunities like this, like why do we celebrate something like this? Why do we put it on the calendar kind of thing of like, well, you know, part of you know if you know what day it is or what time it is like that's that's been measured off of the death of this person that this myth is about and so what that means is that like you know where you are in the world because of this myth right it contextualizes your existence even if you don't accept it in some way as like whatever you've been told or whatever the the there's something fundamental about it at the bottom of your consciousness and so when moments like this we mark the calendar it's a reminder of for you to be like what would it mean to die today what would it mean to be reborn what needs to die like those are the kind of questions that like to me having these kind of um you know just having these kind of things marked to remember to think about i mean that's your way in you know nothing like an existential time and space question <laughs> in doubt the podcast well that's, that's what hilarious. i got well thanks so much guys yeah, this thanks. was fun